126. The principal parts of the doctrine of holy baptism are these three. First, that we with our children are conceived and born in sin, and therefore are children of wrath, insomuch that we cannot enter into the kingdom of God except we are born again. This, the dipping in or sprinkling with water, teaches us whereby the impurity of our souls is signified. And we admonished to loathe and humble ourselves before God and seek for our purification and salvation without or outside of ourselves. Secondly, holy baptism witnesses and seals unto us the washing away of our sins through Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. For when we are baptized in the name of the Father, God the Father witnesses and seals unto us that he does make an eternal covenant of grace with us and adopts us for his children and heirs and therefore will provide us with every good thing and avert all evil or turn it to our profit. And when we are baptized in the name of the Son, the Son seals unto us that he does wash us in his blood from all our sins, incorporating us into the fellowship of his death and resurrection so that we are freed from all our sins and accounted righteous before God. In like manner, when we are baptized in the name of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit assures us by this holy sacrament that he will dwell in us and sanctify us to be members of Christ, applying unto us that which we have in Christ, namely the washing away of our sins and the daily renewing of our lives, till we shall finally be presented without spot or wrinkle, among the assembly of the elect in life eternal. Thirdly, whereas in all covenants there are contained two parts, therefore are we by God through baptism admonished of and obliged unto new obedience, namely that we cleave to this one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we trust in him and love him with all our hearts, with all our souls, with all our mind, and with all our strength, that we forsake the world crucify our old nature, and walk in a new and holy life. And if we sometimes through weakness fall into sin, we must not therefore despair of God's mercy, nor continue in sin, since baptism is a seal and undoubted testimony that we have an eternal covenant of grace with God. And although our young children do not understand these things, we may not therefore exclude them from baptism. For as they are without their knowledge partakers of the condemnation in Adam, So are they again received unto grace in Christ, as God speaks unto Abraham, the father of all the faithful, and therefore unto us and our children, saying, I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. This also the Apostle Peter testifies with these words, for the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Therefore God formally commanded them to be circumcised, which was the seal of the covenant and of the righteousness of faith. And therefore Christ also embraced them, laid his hands upon them, and blessed them. Since then baptism is come in the place of circumcision. Therefore infants are to be baptized as heirs of the kingdom of God and of his covenant. And parents are in duty bound further to instruct their children herein when they shall arrive to years of discretion. That therefore this holy ordinance of God may be administered to his glory, to our comfort, and to the edification of his church. Let us call upon his holy name. 
Let us pray. O Almighty and Eternal God, Thou who hast, according to Thy severe judgment, punished the unbelieving and unrepentant world with the flood, and hast, according to Thy great mercy, saved and protected believing Noah and his family, Thou who hast drowned the obstinate Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, and hast led Thy people Israel through the midst of the sea upon dry ground, by which baptism was signified, we beseech Thee that Thou will be pleased of Thine infinite mercy, graciously to look upon these children and incorporate them by Thy Holy Spirit into Thy Son, Jesus Christ, that they may be buried with Him into His death and be raised with Him in newness of life, that they may daily follow Him, joyfully bearing their cross and cleave unto Him in true faith, firm hope and ardent love that they may, with a comfortable sense of thy favor, leave this life, which is nothing but a continual death, and at the last day may appear without terror before the judgment seat of Christ thy Son, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who with thee and the Holy Spirit, one only God, lives and reigns forever. Amen. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I ask you to rise now at this point. We'll go through the questions. You have heard that baptism is an ordinance of God to seal unto us and to our seed His covenant. Therefore, it must be used for that end and not out of custom or superstition. That it may be then manifest that you are thus minded. You are to answer sincerely to these questions. First, whether you acknowledge that although our children are conceived and born in sin, and therefore are subject to all miseries, yea, to condemnation itself, yet that they are sanctified in Christ, and therefore as members of His Church ought to be baptized. Secondly, whether you acknowledge the doctrine which is contained in the Old and New Testaments and in the articles of the Christian faith and which is taught here in this Christian Church to be the true and complete doctrine of salvation. Thirdly, whether you promise and intend to see these children when come to the years of discretion, whereof you are either parent, or whereof you are the parents, instructed and brought up in the aforesaid doctrine, or help or cause them to be instructed therein, to the utmost of your power. What is your answer, JC? Yes. Kirsten? Albert? Yes. Michelle? Danny? Yes. Melissa? Ben? Yes. Rose? Dear parents, in a few moments, your children are going to be baptized in the name of the triune God. What a mercy that is when you think about it. Your children have been born into a, a broken world, a, a sinful world, a world that's in rebellion against God, a world that's full of suffering. And, and by nature, your children are no different. They are just as sinful. They are just as rebellious. But they're being baptized in agreement with God's word is a sign and seal to them and to you as parents and really to us all that God in his sovereign grace has set them apart without their knowledge even, without their awareness. He, he comes to them without their doing anything for them. Think about Jesus, as we, as we saw the last baptism, how Jesus blessed the little children without them doing anything for him. He comes to them and he promises, he signs and seals to each of them his promise 
that he will be a God unto them, that he will give them everything that they need for their salvation, all that they need for eternal life. What an encouragement that can be also for you as parents, as you raise your children, as you, as you teach them, as they grow up, you teach them about their sinfulness, as they learn their sinfulness by their own painful experience, you can point them to this God, this triune God, the Savior God, who has promised to be their all-sufficient Savior. And you can earnestly then urge them and encourage them to go to the Lord, to go to Him with all their sins and, and whatever circumstances they may be, find themselves in and all their struggles and all their suffering. To go to God, looking to Christ. And not just once, but over and over again. And they can know that He will receive them as He has promised. He is a God that you, that they that all of us can count on. So now we'll proceed to the baptism, and as we do so, I ask the parents to come up, and as we do that, we'll sing 425, and slightly different than what's on the board, we'll sing verse 3 now, and then after the baptism, we'll sing just, just verse 5 of 425. So verse 3 now, and then verse 5 after the baptism. baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Gemma Faith Brink, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Ezra Dan Firet, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And Quinn and Geraldine Van Driesten, I baptize you in the name of the Father, 
and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. from there into the pastoral prayer and pray for the needs of the congregation. Before we do that, I have just one announcement from the consistory, and that is that the consistory reminds you of the topic evening on accountability and protection in a digital age this coming Wednesday at 7.30. We, we strongly encourage you to attend this evening, whether you're parents or grandparents, single, young, or old. It's an important topic for all of us, and so you're invited to attend. Let us know. Pray and thank, give thanks to the Lord. Almighty God and merciful Father, we thank and praise Thee that Thou hast forgiven us and our children all our sins through the blood of Thy beloved Son, Jesus Christ, and received us through Thy Holy Spirit as members of Thine only begotten Son, and adopted us to be Thy children, and sealed and confirmed the same unto us by holy baptism. We beseech thee through the same Son of thy love, that thou wilt be pleased always to govern these dear baptized children by thy Holy Spirit, that they may be piously and religious, religiously educated, increase and grow up in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they then may acknowledge thy fatherly goodness and mercy which thou hast shown to them and to us, and live in all righteousness under our only teacher, King and High Priest Jesus Christ and manfully fight against and overcome sin, the devil and his whole dominion, to the end that they may eternally praise and magnify thee and thy Son, Jesus Christ, together with the Holy Spirit, the one, only true God. And so, Lord, we thank you for this special day, this special occasion. We rejoice with the parents, as we may have witnessed you coming so close to these, their children. We pray that as they take up their task of caring for these children and, and for their other children that you have given to them, they, they would remember your undeserved covenant mercies shown to them and to their families. And that we all would remember 
that they and we together with our children would, as we have already prayed, cleave to you, that we would never forsake you, that we would hold fast to you, trusting that you will uphold us and you will keep us every moment throughout our whole entire life. Lord, we confess we need you so much. We are so quick to go astray. We are so prone to wander, prone to sin. And so, Lord, we, we confess that all of us have sinned also in this past week. As sinners, we have sinned in, in different ways, but in, in specific ways. And, and yet, even when we sin, the psalmist reminds us that we may come to you as our hiding place. You know, that's how much better that is than to try and cover our sins up, to try to hide our sins from you. For, Lord, you are the all-knowing God. You are the all-seeing God. And so we come to you with all of our sins. We bring them into the light. We bring them before your throne. And we confess them in humility before you. We ask you to cleanse and to forgive and to receive us by the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, as you promised to do for all who confess their sins. Lord, we, we, we rely on your word. We, we bring... We pray your word back to you. Pardon us, O Lord, according to your great mercy, for your name's sake, according to your loving kindness. For you, O Lord, are the one who is great in loving kindness, the one whose grace is abounding, even for the chief of sinners. And so, Lord, we come in, in humility, but we come in hope. And we come in thanksgiving for the great salvation that you have worked and that you have revealed to us through your word. We pray, O oh Lord, as well for a blessing on us as a congregation. We pray as we think of these, this blessing of seeing these covenant children baptized. We pray for those who are expecting, those mothers who are expecting children. We pray, Lord, that you would be with them and strengthen them in the often what can be very tiring days, Lord, that you would bless them and bless the little lives that are growing, the little persons that are growing inside them. And at due time, O oh Lord, the children would be born and they too would be, would be baptized and as a sign and seal of your covenant of grace. And Father, we pray for those who would love to have children but have been unable to or maybe would love to have more but have, have not been able to. Lord, we bring these burdens in, to you as well. And we do pray for them that you would hear their prayers. We pray that you would give them children, Lord. But we also pray that you would give them grace to submit to your timing and to your will for their lives. Be with those who would love to be married but are not, Lord. We uh, pray for them too as well, that you would give them grace and strength and their struggles and difficulties too. We pray, Father, for those who are sick, those who are struggling with weakness and pain. And we remember especially our sister Anne Vanderheide as she struggles with the fractures in her back and the pain that that brings and her, with her osteoporosis. Father, we pray that you would surround her with your mercy. Also in this trial, and 
that you would grant relief from the pain, and you would strengthen and help her, and, and as well as Peter at her at her side, and, and bless also the tests that she will have to this week to that end. Lord, that the doctors would be able to to help her, that you would help her, O oh Lord. We also pray for Sister Dini Veni with the sickness that she's been struggling with this past week, the, the cough and the fluid in the lungs. Lord, we pray that you would sustain her and that you would heal her, that you would also be her comfort in her affliction. We pray for all of our shut-ins, Lord, those who cannot come to church. Uh, we ask that you would be near to them and give them uh, comfort as well and strength for each day. What can often be lonely days and days that are filled with thoughts of, of the past and maybe longing for the past. But Lord, we pray that even as they think of what has all been in the past, that they would look to you and, and long even more for you. And would you satisfy their longing, O Lord, by your Holy Spirit and through your word coming near to them and healing in their wounds and, and strengthening them. Father, we pray for all who are overwhelmed with different struggles. We all have struggles, we all have challenges, we all have crosses. You know them, Lord. We ask that you would help us and strengthen us and keep us from sinful responses to the trials that come our way. We grant us, Lord, faith in you, knowing that you are, you, you alone are God. And as we have read and hope to hear more of in a few moments, Lord, that we would, by that knowledge, knowing knowing that you alone are God, that you are the almighty God and the gracious God, that we would turn to you, that you would convict us, also through your word this morning, that you would also comfort us, that you would produce faith, and you would strengthen faith, that you would deepen our love for you and our devotion to you. You would turn our hearts to you, that you would unite them to serve you, to trust you, to trust your word, and to fear you. Lord, we cannot do this. We cannot make this happen. We, and that's why we pray that to, this to you now, Lord. We also pray that you would bless the, the evening that's to be held this week regarding uh, protection in the digital age, Lord. We ask that you would grant that to be a blessed evening for all of us, that it would be a means of equipping us against the uh, temptations that face us, especially today. And Lord, that you would grant those also who struggle with, with sins of pornography and, and, and other, other things like that, Lord, that you would grant them freedom, that you would work in them, that they would have a desire to be made free. And Lord, that they would look to you and find their help and their refuge in, in you. Lord, we pray m many things, but we bring it all to you and we could pray even more, pray even longer because we have so many needs. But we pray to you because we believe and we trust your truth that you are the God who cares, the God who sustains, that you are our God, the triune God. And so we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.
We now have opportunity to give of your gifts and offerings to the Lord for his church and kingdom. And then we'll sing from Psalter 212. 212 will sing the second tune, all three stanzas of 212.
beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, and your visitors also here among us, I wonder if you've ever tried to prove yourself. Maybe children, young people, you've, you've tried to prove yourself in an arm wrestling contest or a, a full-out wrestling match. You've, you've tried to prove your strength, your power. Or, or maybe you've tried to prove your skill in a certain sport, whether it's soccer or basketball or volleyball. Maybe you, you've tried to prove your worth at your job by trying to work the fastest or, or trying to outdo the performance of someone else, whether that's a co-worker or whether that's a competitor. There are many ways we try to prove ourselves, but we don't always succeed. Well, in 1 Kings 18, we read about how the Lord not only tried to prove himself, but he did. He succeeded in proving himself in a contest on Mount Carmel. This contest wasn't primarily about power or skill or performance, although power was certainly involved, but, but this contest is, is, is a much greater contest than the kind of contest that we engage in. It was a contest about who was God. Was Baal or was the Lord? Of course, we know the answer to that because we read the story. The Lord, of course, won the contest. By sending first fire and then rain, the Lord proved himself as God. But what is that event on Mount Carmel so many years ago, so long ago, have to do with us today? And, and what does it have to do with the baptisms of your children? Well, everything, really. The Lord's proving himself as God on Mount Carmel helps us to see the significance of these baptisms and the significance of all our baptisms. Also yours and mine. It's not, baptism is not just a meaningless ritual or tradition. You see, the triune God who has just put his name, as it were, on, on each of these children and signed and sealed his covenant claim on them is that same Lord who proved himself on Mount Carmel. And knowing that, knowing that this triune God is the one who proved himself on Mount, on, on Mount Carmel gives so much encouragement. To you as parents, whom he has entrusted to bring up these children, in the knowledge and in the fear of him. It gives, it gives so much encouragement too when we struggle with the reality of sin and of, and of evil. Also in, in the hearts of our own children and in our own hearts. And even the hard-hearted unbelief, perhaps, of our covenant children for some of us. Yes, knowing that this God... It's the same Lord who proved himself on Mount Carmel gives so much encouragement for parents and children alike to look to Christ, to believing that God will accept us and bless us for his sake. You say, how? Well, let's look at our passage. 1 Kings 18, verses 17 to 46. Under the theme, the Lord proves himself on Mount Carmel. First of all, we'll see that he proves himself as the one only God. Secondly, he proves himself as the great almighty God. And thirdly, he proves himself as the gracious covenant God. 
First of all, the Lord proves himself on Mount Carmel as a one only God. You know, if we jump ahead in the, in the passage to verses 37 to 39 for a moment, congregation, what happens? What happens when Elijah prays? We know, don't we? Fire falls from heaven and the people fall on their faces and they say what? They say, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And in the original, the emphasis is on that he, he and he alone. And that tells us that what the Lord was proving to the people on Mount Carmel was that not merely that he is a God, or that he is the chief God, or, or even primarily at this point that he is their God, although of course that's, a, that's in there, of course, but, but that he is the God, God alone, the one and only God. This is a crucial lesson of this event, not just for the people who were on Mount Carmel at that time, but also for all who read it. Also for us. And that lesson becomes clear in two ways. First, from our passage, the Lord proves himself as God in a pagan context. He proves himself as God in an idolatrous nation. The spiritual condition of Israel at this time was was bleak. Maybe you, you remember that from the sermon last week on Obadiah's fear of God. By their promotion of Baal worship, Ahab and his pagan wife Jezebel had brought Israel to an extremely low position, low point spiritually. And that had resulted in judgment. God had sent Elijah to Ahab in chapter 17 to pronounce a drought on Israel. That meant famine, that meant hunger, that meant starvation. But Ahab didn't get it. When he finally meets Elijah again in chapter 18, verse 17, what does he do? He accuses Elijah of troubling or bringing disaster on Israel. But Elijah shows Ahab that the problem was himself. In verse 18, he says to Ahab, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house, in that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed Balaam, or the Baals. Israel under Ahab's and Jezebel's leadership had essentially become a pagan and idolatrous nation, no different than the nations around them. But what did that look like? What did that mean practically? It didn't mean that the people completely rejected the Lord outright. No, instead they tried to serve the Lord and Baal. Elijah confronted them on this in verse 21 when he said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. The people he was saying were were halting. They were were faltering back and forth between serving the Lord and serving Baal. You know what they had become? They had essentially become pluralists. They believed they could serve more than one God. But it doesn't work. It never works. But it's into this pagan and into this pluralistic context that the Lord comes and proves himself on Mount Carmel as God, as the one only God. Dear congregation, dear parents, isn't that such an encouragement to us? You see, we live in a pagan society, in an idolatrous culture, much like Israel's culture in 1 Kings 18. We live in a culture that promotes pluralism. We live in a culture that claims that all roads and all religions lead to heaven. 
We live in a culture that challenges and that mocks and even viciously attacks those who believe and proclaim that the Bible alone is the word of God and that Jesus Christ alone is the way to God. And this, this opposition, this idolatry, this paganism at times can be overwhelming for us. It can be frightening. It can be confusing. It can, it can even cause doubts and, and struggles in faith. And when we think of our children growing up in such a world, such a culture, we can, we can become even more frightened and more fearful. But we don't need to be. We can have confidence because the Lord has proven himself as the one only God in a context just like our own. What an encouragement that is for ourselves also as we raise our children in this culture. And what reason to point them over and over again to the one true God. The God who has promised to be their God. And what an encouragement, yes, what a call this also is to all of us, also children here and young people, to trust in Him and to keep trusting in Him. But what a challenge too, what a challenge to us as parents and as older ones to be fully, fully committed to this God, to serving and worshipping and following Him. What did Elijah say? If the Lord be God, follow him. Beloved, we need this challenge because it can be so tempting in a culture like ours to follow its gods. To think that, yeah, we can go to church on Sunday, but we can also, the rest of the week, we can do worship whoever and whatever. It might not be Baal, but it might be the God of money and possessions, or the God of pleasure or the God of popularity, or the God of relevance, or the God of ritual. But beloved, the Lord is the one only God. Also in our culture, we cannot serve God and mammon. Jesus told us that. We cannot serve two masters. So let us serve them and follow him wholeheartedly, all out for God. Yes, also as parents, let us lead by grace, especially as fathers, let us lead our families in following after the Lord. The one who has proven himself as the one only God. Not only by proving himself in a pagan context, but also by proving himself as God by a clear contrast. After the people agreed to Elijah's contest, Elijah gives, did you notice that? Elijah gives the prophets of Baal all the advantages. Verse 25 tells us that he gives them first pick of the two bowls. And he lets them, them prepare their bowl first and call on their gods. And so they do. For several hours, from morning until noon, they cry out to Baal. And yet what does verse 26 say? But there was no voice, nor any that answered. And so they got more animated. They leaped, they danced around the altar. And finally at noon, Elijah begins to mock them. He tells them to, to cry aloud, for, for he is a god. And then Elijah suggests, doesn't he, he suggests several things Baal might be doing that maybe is keeping him from, from hearing them. And we need to understand here that Elijah wasn't making these, these things up. In the, in the Baal religion, that, what he was describing there, that was, that was what the people believed. And he, he's drawing that out. He's pointing out the folly, the foolishness of worshipping Baal. 
Either he's talking or meditating, maybe we could translate, so that he can't hear them. Or he is pursuing, and, and the precise meaning of this word is unclear. It may, even some commentators think it may be a reference to, to using the bathroom. Or he is on a journey. Or perhaps he is, he is sleeping and has to be woken up. Do you see what Elijah is doing? He's mocking the worship of Baal. Why would anyone serve a God like that? And he doesn't even, he doesn't even describe everything. Because in, in Baal religion, it was also commonly believed that during the dry season, because Baal was a storm god, well, why is there a dry season? Well, because Baal's dead. He doesn't even go that far. But the people, they don't say, oh yeah, how, how foolish. No, they actually take him seriously. The prophets do. They go all out. They cry aloud. They even cut themselves according to the customs of, of Baal worship with knives and lances until the blood gushes out of them. They prophesied. And, and that doesn't mean they were speaking authoritative words from God, but they were trying to sound like prophets. And they did this until three in the afternoon. That was the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. So from morning till three o'clock, probably close to six hours at least, the prophets of Baal were at it, trying to get Baal to send fire on their altar. And still the end of verse 29 says, there was neither voice, nor any to answer, nor any that regarded. And then in striking contrast to this, what does Elijah do? After rebuilding the altar of the Lord, after laying the bowl on it and cutting it up in pieces and laying it on the altar and laying the wood and even drenching the altar several times, he prays an earnest but simple and humble prayer. And the fire of the Lord falls. Do you see the contrast, beloved? Baal is not a lower god. He's no God. He's simply an idol. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 4, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is none other God but one. That's what this contrast, the Lord, by this contrast, what the Lord makes so clear. He proves himself as the one only God. And isn't that such a help and such an encouragement for you, dear parents? And also all of us here. Doesn't this motivate us to teach our children as they grow older about this one only God and how he came to them in baptism and signed and sealed his promise to be their God? Doesn't this encourage us and call us all to follow him and to rely on him in all our needs? But maybe you say, is, is he sufficient? Is he sufficient to meet my needs? And even if we don't say that, how many of us live consistently believing that God is sufficient for all our needs? Don't, don't you wonder sometimes, is he strong enough to help me in my struggle, whether it's a personal struggle with sin or, or a struggle in your marriage or, or, or the struggle of raising children in God's ways or, or another struggle? Is, is God able well, notice with me from this passage, not only that the Lord proves himself on Mount Carmel as the one only God, but also, here we come to our second point, he proves himself as the great almighty God. The great almighty God. And he, he does this, the first way he does this, 
is by proving himself as God in all places. Think, think with me here about where this contest took place. It took place on Mount Carmel. If you think of a map, Mount Carmel would, would be on the, on the Mediterranean Sea in the northern part of Israel, kind of across from the Sea of Galilee. It jutted out into, into the Mediterranean. But there are, there are two important things to note about this mountain. First of all, it wasn't Mount Moriah. It wasn't the Temple Mount. It wasn't where the Temple of Jerusalem was. It wasn't the place where God had put His name. It wasn't the place where He had promised especially to dwell. And secondly, it was very likely, Mount Carmel was very likely a place that the people had already dedicated to Baal worship. At one time, it seems the people worshipped the Lord here because verse 30 says that Elijah repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And that's better translated, intentionally destroyed. But there's no mention, did you notice that? There's no mention of the prophets building an altar. Verse 20, the prophets of Baal building an altar. Verse 26 refers to their altar as the altar which was made. So it seems that Mount Carmel at this time and Different records in archaeology confirm this too. Mount Carmel was Baal's territory, so to speak. And yet when Baal's prophets cry out to him, there's no answer. Because Baal isn't a god. But when Elijah prays to the Lord, he, in answer to his prayer, pours out fire by his almighty power, even in the territory of Baal. And in a sense, it's, it's nothing new if you've Follow the story of Elijah, the account of Elijah in the Old Testament, 1 Kings 17, just a chapter before. Where is Elijah? He's in, he's in Sidon with the widow. And he's showing the Lord's power also there. But what this tells us, congregation, is that the Lord is God in all places. He is God not only in the temple. He is not limited to, to the four walls of a church building. He is God not only in places where people recognize and worship Him as God. He is God everywhere. Even in the places where people and in the nations where people have refused and rejected Him. He is the great Almighty God. He is God in all places. Isn't that such an encouragement and a comfort? Because do you see what it means? It means that there is never a place that we can be. And there is never a place where our children can go where God is not there. Whether it's a hospital or whether it's a care home, whether it's college or whether it's a job site, whether it's the office or whether it's the home, whether it's in Canada or on the other side of the world, the Lord is there. And He is there as God, as the one only God, and as the great Almighty God. Oh, what a comfort that is. It was a comfort for David in Psalm 139 when he said to the Lord, Whither or where shall I go from thy spirit? Or where shall I flee from thy presence? If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand, what? Shall thy hand lead me and thy right hand uphold me. Dear children, dear congregation, 
There is never a place where you cannot rely on God. Even, yes, even in the places that we bring ourselves into because of our sinful and foolish choices. He is God, and you can rely on Him there. No, you cannot presume on Him, but you can rely on Him. You can humble yourself before Him and ask for Him to help you, to save you. Because He is God in all places, and He has committed Himself in baptism to be your God. So trust Him. Obey Him. There is no one mightier. He has proven himself as the great almighty God, not only by proving himself as God in all places, but also by proving himself as God against all odds. Against all odds. Children, do you remember? Do you remember how many prophets of Baal there were compared to prophets of the Lord? Do you remember the number? 450 that's not including the, the prophets of the groves. If you count them in, that's 850. But 450 prophets of Baal to one prophet of the Lord. Yet the Lord sent fire and Baal did not. As one commentator put it, the Lord's power, the Lord's power has never depended on how many cheerleaders he has. And it never will. He is, after all, the Lord. He is the I am who I am, the one who needs no one and nothing. But it's not just the 450 prophets of Baal versus one prophet of the Lord that makes clear the Lord's almighty power. The Lord also has to deal with Elijah's purposefully drenching the altar of the Lord with four barrels of water. Not just once, not just twice, but three times. And he even fills the trench around the altar with water. Now, children, now, if you go camping and you try to light a, a fire with damp wood, you, you know what happens. It doesn't light. Any normal fire wouldn't do anything to, what Eli, to Elijah's altar. But when the Lord poured out his fire in answer to Elijah's prayer, verse 38 tells us that it not only consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood, but also the stones and the dust, and it even licked up the water that was in the trench. That is almighty power. And that is the power of the Lord. Now on the one hand, that's very sobering. Especially, especially for the prophets of Baal. Those who are serving Baal. We know what happened to them. Elijah killed them. As punishment just punishment because that was what was commanded in Deuteronomy for those who, who led the people in idolatry. And it's a warning. It's a warning to us. But I want to focus here on what a comfort and an encouragement it is for God's struggling people. Because it reminds us, doesn't it? It reminds us that there is nothing too hard for the Lord. There is no situation in your life or in your child's life that the Lord cannot handle. He is the great almighty God. So you can trust him in the midst of every challenge, every difficulty, and every trial. 
Yes, also in the trial and in the struggle that raising children can so often be. As sinners raising sinners, God is willing and able to help. As we struggle with the painful reality of sin and evil in our own hearts and in the hearts of those around us, in the hearts of our children and in, in the world around us and in the, with the suffering that comes with living in this world. We do not have to struggle alone. But we can go to this almighty God with all of it, with all of our struggles, and we can trust him to help, to help us. And that's true. Also, when we have grown children, who don't walk with the Lord, Some of you I know struggle with this. How sad that makes you feel. How hopeless that can make you feel at times. You can bring even this burden, this trial, those children to the Lord. Because he is able to change and to melt even the hardest heart. We know it because he has proven himself on Mount Carmel as the great almighty God. But we need more. We need more than God's almighty power, don't we? We need forgiveness. We need grace. And that brings us to our third and last point. The Lord proves himself on Mount Carmel as the gracious covenant God. Where do we see this in our passage? First of all, we see it in Elijah's repairing the altar of the Lord in verses 30 to 32. It's important to remember what, that Elijah is, as he says here, in verse, as he says later in verse 36, he's acting here as the servant of the Lord. Everything he's doing, he's doing at God's word, at God's command. And that includes, with all the people watching him, his rebuilding, literally, the, the, the original is his healing the altar of the Lord. That altar that was broken down, that altar that was intentionally destroyed. Well, beloved, doesn't that already show you? The gracious, that the Lord is, is a gracious covenant God. Doesn't it show that he remembers his gracious covenant even when his covenant people have refused it and rejected it? Elijah's taking 12 stones to build the altar shows this. Because remember, congregation, that the 10 tribes of Israel had split away from Judah, the tribe through whom the promised Messiah would come. And what did they deserve because of that? They deserved to be cut off to be removed forever. But that's not what happens, is it? No. Elijah takes 12 stones, representing the 12 tribes of Israel, and he builds an altar with all 12 stones. The Lord is saying to the people watching, he's saying to Israel, he's reminding them, you belong to me. You belong with my covenant people. He is proving himself, don't you see, as the gracious covenant God, the God who never forgets his covenant and who never forgets his grace. Oh, what an encouragement that is for all of us. But especially for any who are here and who have been and are living in rejection of the God who made you and the God who came to you in baptism and claimed you for his own, That's a serious sin. 
there is hope. Because God doesn't forget his covenant. He doesn't forget his grace. He can rebuild. He can heal. He can renew the relationship with him that you by your sin and rebellion have destroyed. What an encouragement that is. Also for us as parents in the midst of all our failures and shortcomings in raising our children. All of our sins. Our hope does not lie in our parenting. It lies, as important as that is, it lies in our God. Our faithful, covenant-keeping God. The second way in our passage that we see the Lord proving himself as a gracious covenant God is in his providing a mediator. Did you notice who is doing everything in these verses? It's Elijah. And he's doing everything, as we already noticed, at the word of God as the Lord's servant. God has provided Israel with Elijah as a a mediator, as someone who is bringing the people and the Lord together. And what does he do as mediator? In verse 33, he prepares a bowl as a sacrifice to the Lord on the altar. But he not only prepares a sacrifice, in verses 36 and 37, he also prays. He also intercedes for the people. And how does the Lord respond? He hears and he answers Elijah's prayer. He accepts Elijah's sacrifice. What a picture. What a picture that is of what God has done for us in the gospel. He has provided us with a mediator, not Elijah, but his incarnate son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in fulfillment of his covenant promise. And he has accepted his sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself. We know that not because the fire of the Lord descended from heaven and consumed him, but because he, Jesus Christ, fully endured the wrath of God on the cross. Humbling himself unto death. And yet he didn't stay dead. He rose again and he ascended into heaven. And even now he's sitting at God's right hand. And he continues to work as mediator even there. Ever living to make intercession for all who come unto God by him. And the Lord hears and answers him. He accepts his sacrifice. Oh what a savior God the Lord has given us. A savior who is able to save to the uttermost. Oh, beloved, then let us come. Let us all come. Parents, grandparents, adults, young people, children, let us draw near to this mediator, this Jesus. He calls you like Elijah called the people to come. Jesus calls us to come. God, and God has accepted him on sinner's behalf. The water of baptism testifies to that. So come. Don't rely on your own works. Don't... Don't rely on religious frenzy like the prophets of Baal, but come to Jesus Christ, the only Savior, and trust him. Be united to him by faith in him. The Lord rebuilds his altar. He provides a mediator. And lastly, notice from verses 41 to 46 that he reverses the curse. He turns the curse into blessing. Do you remember how chapter 18 started? It started with God promising Elijah that he was going to send rain upon the earth. The drought and the famine were evidence of God's curse. But the Lord, and the Lord in his righteous judgment had withheld the rain because Israel had forsaken him. 
But now, here on Mount Carmel, God in his marvelous, undeserved, sovereign grace proves himself as the gracious covenant God by reversing the curse and restoring his blessing. Elijah says to Ahab in verse 41, Get thee up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of abundance of rain. And then Elijah prays again. He's casting himself down upon the earth in verse 42 and and putting his face between his knees with a posture of humble prayer. And it teaches us, on the one hand, doesn't it? It teaches us the importance of prayer. That even for the things God has already promised, we are called to pray for that. And James, he takes this example of Elijah, doesn't he, in in his book, and he he encourages prayer by by pointing to Elijah who had a a nature like ours, and and yet he prayed first for there would be no rain, and and the Lord heard him, and then, then he prayed for rain, and the Lord heard him, and he said this, the effective, fervent prayer that, that avails much, of a righteous man avails much. So there's a lesson there for us. But, but I want to focus here on, on how the curse is reversed. It's reversed through the mediator. In this case here, Elijah. But he's pointing us to Christ. It is through Christ. It is in and through him alone that the curse that we have brought on this world and brought on ourselves, deserved for ourselves because of our sin, it is through Christ that that curse is reversed. It is through Him who renews us by His Word and Spirit and who secures every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing is in Christ. Oh, how we need Jesus Christ. Do you need Him? Do you know Him? Do you trust Him? And what a comfort and what a help that is when you do. As we live in a world that lies under the judgment of God. It can be a very hard, it can be a very hard congregation to live in this world as Christians. Also as we still experience the effects of the curse. It can be hard to live persevering in faith. But God's eventual reversal of the curse through Elijah's intercession assures us that there is abundant blessing coming for all who look to Jesus and who live for him. Because of Christ's work, because of his mediatorial work, his sacrifice and his intercession for his people, then you may know the curse will one day be gone. The heavens and the earth will be made new. Sorrow and pain and sickness and death will be no more. Sin will be gone forever. And it will all be because the Lord is the gracious covenant God. That's what baptism, also the baptism of these dear children, signs and seals to them and to us. So let us look to this triune God. Let us rest in Christ alone for all our salvation. And let us pray much, congregation, for our children, for these children and all our children, that they might know, that they might know this Lord, the Lord who has proved himself on Mount Carmel, is God. Not just in Israel, but he is God among us. And may we so live as 
let's so live in such a way that demonstrates this. Let's not be double-minded, trying to serve two masters, but let us trust and love and serve the Lord with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. For He is the one only God. He is the great Almighty God. And He is the gracious covenant God. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, we sung before the sermon, Thy wondrous works and deeds, O Lord, we will commemorate. And we have meditated on this work that you did so many years ago on a mountain in Israel. You proved yourself as God. What a comfort, what an encouragement this is, O oh Lord. And what a calling this puts on us, Lord. We confess that we need to be reminded of this again and again. We would turn away from serving false gods, those idols that are not gods. And we would serve you alone, that we would love you alone. Lord, we thank you that you are a God in all places. And you are a God who works his power, his almighty power, even against all odds. Lord, there are many things that we have to face as parents. There are many things that our children have to face. And the chiefest of them is our own sinful hearts. But Lord, we pray that you would come to each one of us, to each of our children, that you would destroy the power of sin and the power of Satan in our lives and in our hearts, and that we would, our hearts would be made new and renewed so that we would serve you and you alone. For you alone are worthy. You alone are God. There is no one besides the Lord. The triune God. And you are an all-sufficient God. We do pray too, O Lord, for those whose children have walked away from you, who show no interest in what they learned in childhood. We pray that you would yet work by your power and by your grace. Remember your covenant, O Lord. We ask us all in Jesus' name.